Our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible. If you need a Bible, just put up your hand or holler at them. Uh, you can turn uh, in your Bible to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're really beginning to tread here now on holy ground as we enter into the final three chapters of John's gospel. And uh, we're also heading towards the, uh, uh, the Easter uh, season with Good Friday coming up and uh, a Resurrection Sunday. And the Gospel of John will sort of guide us uh, really right to the cross and to the empty tomb and, uh, and the resurrection. And so these are important times. Actually, these are really the darkest hours of Jesus' life. And one of the things that I've found is that when things happen to be the darkest in my life, that's actually when I can see God the clearest. I'm not sure if that's been your experience, but it's certainly been mine that when things have been darkest, that's when I can see God clearest. And it's interesting that at these dark moments in Jesus' life, this is when we see who he is on full display. You see, the way the Gospel of John ends is not that Jesus is some sort of failed hero who gets in trouble with the law. He's not some sort of misunderstood martyr. He's not, he's not a helpless victim. We serve a sovereign Savior who is in complete control of every situation and circumstance that we might face. And it's, it's in these concluding chapters, especially in the passage that we're going to study this morning, we're going to see the sovereign power of Jesus Christ on, on full display. John 18, verses 1 to 11. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Judas often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus is not a helpless victim, a failed hero, or a misunderstood martyr. He is, in fact, a sovereign Savior. He was sovereign over his darkest hour. His, his power and glory is made manifest and seen most clearly in the dark. And in our dark times, and our dark hour, we can see the same. We can see that we follow a sovereign, a Savior. Here's the first thing that we can really make note of as we look at this story, is that 
is that as Jesus is being arrested, really what's happening, this isn't just the plan of Judas or the Sanhedrin or even the Romans. This is Jesus' plan. So if you're taking notes today, jot this down, that he is orchestrating his plan. Like a conductor at the beginning of the orchestra, you know, he's there in the garden, he's saying, cue Judas, and and now the Romans, it's time for them to come. Jesus is orchestrating this whole situation. It says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Uh, The brook uh, Kidron was a valley between Mount Zion and Mount Olive. So the city of Jerusalem, just outside the city walls, as soon as you sort of entered the city or exited the city towards the the east, you would go down into the Kidron uh, Valley. And it says that Jesus entered into a garden sort of at the foothills of the the Mount of Olives. Uh, Peter King, a member of our church, has visited the Kidron Valley. So here's a photograph. He's in the valley looking. He's looking west right now towards the the city walls. And then they end up in this garden, the Garden of of Gethsemane, uh, filled with uh, with olive uh, trees. This is all part of Jesus' plan. He wanted to get to a garden. In Matthew, we're we're told it's called Gethsemane, which means oil press. But John just simply calls it a garden. Jesus' arrest and his burial and his resurrection, in all three of those accounts in the Gospel of John, there's a reference to a garden. Not a a specific garden, just the simple statement, garden. And I believe John has a theological purpose for using this vague, nondescript name, just calling it a garden. You see, sin started in a garden. Everything began to unravel and fall apart for Adam and Eve in a garden. And now God is beginning to put it all back together in a garden. Sin started in a garden, and sin would be dealt with in a garden. It's all part of his plan. This is, the, the, this is a garden. It's a place where Adam and Eve disobeyed by taking uh, the fruit that they weren't supposed to take. And th- in this garden now, Jesus would perfectly obey uh, the Father. It's all part of his plan Verse 2, it says, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Judas was also part of the plan. As early as John chapter 6, verse 64, Jesus had already said that one of them would, would betray him. And then in John chapter 13, Jesus told Judas specifically, what you are about to do, go and do quickly. He was the one telling Judas uh, to go. It was all happening according to plan. If you keep reading in verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. It's important for us to understand that as Jesus is unfolding his plan, he's not trying to throw Judas off his path. He went to a place where he knew Judas would go looking for him. Chances are, Judas first went to the upper room didn't find them there, but then the next place he thought immediately where Jesus would be with his disciples would be this garden. Jesus is planning all of this. 
In verse 3 it says, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus is in a garden. In the Garden of Eden, the holy God came searching for sinful people. And now we have sinful people coming looking for the holy God, God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Judas has with him really two groups of military personnel. The second group we're familiar with, the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. These were sort of the temple police. These were the ones who in John chapter 7 were sent by the Sanhedrin. Go, go over there and arrest Jesus. We've had enough of this. And so they go intending to lay hands on him and to bring him back to the Sanhedrin. And, but Jesus is in the middle of a sermon and they, they're sort of standing in awe of his words as Jesus says, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then, and then the, sol- the, the soldiers come back and the, the Sanhedrin's like, where is Jesus? You had one job. And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. And so we're not surprised to see that the Sanhedrin has sent, you know, these officers, these temple uh, police. But we're also told that there's a band of soldiers. Well, what is a band of soldiers? What, what, what is their identity? Who, who are they? How, how many are they? The ESV says band of soldiers. The New International Version calls them a detachment. The Holman Christian Standard Bible calls them a company. The New American Standard Bible calls them a Roman cohort. Anytime where you're looking at a number of different translations and just for one word, there's a whole bunch of different words, that's a clue that we need to like study a little bit further. It's a clue that it's a, it's a word that's really difficult to translate that we don't really use in our everyday language. That's because the word there, it's a Greek word, it's the word spera. And it's, it's a technical term. It's a, it's a term that you would really only ever use in the, in the military. And a spera of soldiers is, a, is a, a gathering, a grouping of 600 trained soldiers. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that all 600 were present there, but... but we need to remove from our, from our mind that, you know, Jesus is there with the 11 disciples and maybe like 15 or 20 soldiers show up, like in the church drama, right? That's just because they, that's how many cast members were available. We're talking about several hundred Roman soldiers being present at the arrest of Jesus. They, they were afraid, because Jesus was so popular, they were afraid that there was going to be a riot. But again, all of this is happening according to plan. Chances are they went to the upper room first, but Jesus was drawing them out into the quiet of the garden so that the crowds wouldn't interfere with his plan. And so here's Jesus in this garden Going back to the end of verse 1, it says that they entered the garden. So there's, it, there's walls around it. So you can imagine now that they've been surrounded by the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees and this spera of soldiers. And notice how they've also come with lanterns in verse 3. Lanterns and torches and weapons. First off, they're expecting Jesus to be hiding. 
They're expecting him to put up a fight. They, they got weapons. They got torches. They're thinking they're going to be out all night searching for this fugitive. But they don't have to search for him. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, this is all part of his plan, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He came forward. Again, in the garden, when God came looking for Adam and Eve, they were hiding. When a holy God came looking for sinful man and woman, they were hiding. And now you have sinful man coming to look for the holy God, and he comes forward. Because he knew all that would happen to him. This is all happening according to his plan. That it was happening on Passover because he was indeed the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That it was happening with Judas, one of his own, who he dipped the bread with it, and who would, who would betray him. That it was happening in a garden. That it was happening because his hour had finally come. This is the unfolding of his perfect plan. You know, it's interesting, this isn't the, the only time where a group has gathered around and tried to sort of take Jesus by force. In, in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Jesus perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is what we would normally expect from Jesus. Big crowd, we always see Jesus withdrawing. But here we see Jesus coming forward. So they wanted to take him by force and put him on a throne, and he withdrew. Now they come by force and want to put him on a cross, and he comes forward. Because it's part of his plan. Jesus is not taken by surprise. At his darkest hour, Jesus has a plan. Jesus even has a plan for the darkness of that hour. At our darkest hour, we can understand and recognize that Jesus is never surprised. We're always surprised. But Jesus is never surprised. We follow the good shepherd. He leads us into the valley of the shadow of death. But he also leads us out. We follow him. He has a plan. There's a journey. We, we will. There's, there's a place we're going to get to goodness and mercy following us all the days of our life. Our cups ultimately overflowing at the banquet that he's prepared for us. That's his plan. But part of his plan is in getting there, we go through some dark valleys. It was true for Jesus. It's true for us. And when we think about whatever our darkest hour, in light of what Jesus went through at his darkest hour, it gives us this perspective to understand what we are going through and why and who we're following as we go through it. He's orchestrating his plan. Secondly, he is demonstrating his power. He is demonstrating his power. When things are at its darkest, that's when God is ready to display his sovereign power. In verse 4 it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Verse 5, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, 
they drew back and fell to the ground. Now think about this. Think about how many, how many soldiers we're talking about. We don't know the exact number, but we, it's a very large number of grown men, trained soldiers, at the sound of his voice, were knocked off their feet. This is a beautiful, unprecedented display of Jesus' divinity. He just spoke and they fell over like bowling pins. And he spoke a statement of self-identification. He said, I am he. Now in your ESV Bible, you probably have a footnote beside he, indicating that the translators actually add he, so that the sentence kind of makes sense. You see, all throughout John's Gospel, we have these I am statements. And we've been studying them quite closely. You know, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And all of those statements terminate on something. Jesus says, I am, and then he explains who he is. But there's also a collection of I am statements in the Gospel of John that Jesus kind of just lets dangle. He just says, I am. And everyone's kind of expecting him to say, you are who? You are what? The, the most famous of these is found in John chapter 8 where Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, and the he is added by the translators, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? They're like, finish your sentence, Jesus. You said I am, but you are who? And then in the same conversation in John 8, 58 to 59, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when they heard him say, I am again, they gave him the benefit of the doubt the first time he said it. But now they know what he means. That's why they picked up stones to throw at him. You see, in saying I am, in saying that sort of incomplete sentence, Jesus is actually claiming to be God. When, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Moses was concerned. I, I don't know your name. If the people ask me, who's sending me to rescue you, what do I say? And God said, tell them that I am sent you. In Hebrew, it's, it's Yahweh or Jehovah, Y-H-W-H. But if you were to translate that, that phrase into Greek, it would be ego ami, which is what we have right here in John 18. I am. And so Jesus here is declaring the divine name. He's declaring his identity. This is who I am. I am God. And the soldiers, in hearing him make that declaration, again, 
Just imagine this. Imagine them all toppling over. An incredible display of his power. In verse 7 it says, so we asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. We picture them kind of like, re, like, what just happened? And they're dusting themselves off and they're looking and noticing that they weren't the only one that fell over. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, who's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just merely a man. He is God in the flesh. He is powerful. Then Jesus, in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Let these men go. Now we often overlook this part. It would have made a lot of sense. If they're going to go to the trouble of arresting Jesus, and they have all of these soldiers on hand, why not arrest the other disciples? Why not at least bring them in for questioning? How do you know that they're not going to go off and stir up the crowd? Hey, they just arrested our leader. They just arrested the Messiah. And then they got a whole other headache. Why not take them all in? Certainly that was their intention, to arrest all of them. But Jesus here says, well, if Jesus of Nazareth is who you seek, then let all of these other ones go. You see, this... The soldiers know that they have no leverage to bargain with the guy that just knocked them over with his voice. And so Jesus is basically negotiating here. He's saying, okay, I won't knock you over again if you promise to let these guys go. And I'll be watching you. They all get to go free. It makes no sense why those soldiers would let all of the disciples go free. The reason why they went free is because Jesus is in control of this situation. He says, let them go. At the darkest hour, God demonstrates his power. And then look at verse 9. It says, this was to fulfill the word that had been spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost no one. That's what Jesus said just a few minutes earlier in John 17, 12. I've lost none that you've given me, Father. And this fulfillment language is all over the Gospel of John. In, in John chapter, um, oh shoot, I skipped that verse. Yeah, in reverse, when Jesus is, is, is yeah, let's keep that one up there. When Jesus is, being arrested, he's showing that he's in control. He said earlier in John 10, I lay down my life that no one may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The arrest, it wasn't a chaotic surprise event for Jesus. It was his time to lay down his life. And then he wants his disciples to go free. John here in verse 9 says that it was, it was a, a matter of fulfillment. And all throughout the Gospel of John, there's these references to fulfillment. Let's go to the next slide. In John 12, it says, So that the word of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? 
John 13, 18, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Talking about Judas being prophesied about in the book of Psalms. John 15, 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So all throughout the gospel of John, John is making note of these times where Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But then as you read verse 9, it's the exact same phrasing This was to fulfill, but it wasn't to fulfill what Isaiah said or what David said. It was to fulfill what Jesus said only a matter of minutes earlier. And so we understand how John thought about Jesus. John thought about Jesus' words like being like Old Testament-inspired prophecies. This is the, the authority and the power that Jesus has. So not one of them were to go. At the end of verse 9, it says, I have lost Not one. Not one. But there is one who made it real difficult for Jesus to have this prophecy fulfilled. If there's there's one in every crowd, and there was one among the disciples, if there's ever one who's not going to quite get it the first time, lots of energy, lots of enthusiasm, lots of good intentions but not always the right execution or application. It's Peter, right? So cue Peter. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Alistair Begg, in preaching on this passage, says this. He says, either he is tremendously accurate with the sword or he is incredibly inept. He either was so accurate that he could pick an ear off or he was so incapable that he could miss the head. (laughs) And then Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. He says in verse 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's in the darkest hour where Jesus shows that he has a plan, he demonstrates his power, and then thirdly, make note of this, he is fulfilling his purpose. He is fulfilling his purpose. Jesus came to earth on a mission. He came to that garden on a mission. Peter wanted to take matters into his own hands, which we so often do when things get dark in our lives. We, we want to grab our sword. We, we want to be in charge. We want to fix it or, or fight. Jesus says, put it away. He says, I have, a, I have a purpose. It's interesting the different details that are added. You know, John tells us the guy's name is Malchus. We're going to find out later that John was well known by the the priestly family. So John was probably on a first name basis with the servant that Peter attacked. So that that Malchus is added. The other gospel writers don't mention his name. But the other gospel writers mention how Jesus also responds. He doesn't just say put your sword away. Put your sword back where it belongs. He also puts the guy's ear back where it belongs. In Luke uh, 22. It says no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. John says at the end of the Gospels that Jesus did so many miracles. He did so many amazing things that there isn't enough paper on planet Earth. There aren't enough paper and pens and people to write about all the incredible things that Jesus did. 
So John didn't record that particular miracle, but it happened nonetheless. But Jesus is laser focused on accomplishing his purpose, and it all centers around the cup. Now we remember from the other, the other gospels that Jesus prayed about this cup. And we don't have that recorded here in John, but we know that three different times Jesus said, please, please, if I could not take this cup, let this cup pass by me, Father. And then he ultimately resolved, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. And so here we see Jesus, he has that resolve, he has prayed that prayer, he is on mission, he is, he is aiming at fulfilling his purpose, he is intent on taking the cup. Well, what is the cup? We need to understand sort of the Old Testament context here as it relates to imagery and cups. Look with me at Psalm 75, verse 8 and 9. It says, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Who's the cup for? The cup is for all the wicked. The cup that Jesus says the Father is giving him is intended for the wicked. It's intended for the sinful. It's intended for the evil, for the rebellious. But Jesus says the Father is going to give it to him. And it's, it's, it's supposed to be drained down to the dregs. That's the residue at the bottom of a, of a glass or a bottle. It needs to be completely poured out. It needs to be completely consumed. Isaiah 51 verse 17 calls it the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, 18 says it's the cup of the wine of wrath to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse. The person that drinks the cup is is to be destroyed The person that drinks the cup is to be a waste. They're supposed to be hissing. There's a curse that's put on the person that drinks the cup. And this is the cup that Jesus says the Father is giving to him. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, we need to understand that this is a cup that's supposed to be given to the wicked, to the rebellious, to the evil, to the sinful. And we need to understand that that describes every single one of us. The cup is our cup. And it's called the cup of wrath. There's two terms we really need to be familiar with. The first one is wrath. Wrath is God's righteous anger towards sin. And propitiation is the other word. Propitiation is is the removal or the satisfaction of that wrath. So wrath is God's anger towards sin and propitiation is satisfying that righteous anger towards sin. Now some of you said, you know what Ted, I'm just tired of hearing about an angry God. I believe in a God of love. I'm so glad you believe in a God of love. But the truth is, Unless you believe in a God of wrath, you cannot truly believe in a God of love. God's wrath actually flows from his love. You might consider yourself a loving person, but you are also, if you are a truly loving person, you will also be a person of wrath. 
a person of righteous anger. If you love your family, you would be righteously angry if anyone ever tried to maliciously do something to harm one of the members of your family. If you are not righteously outraged by someone trying to harm one of your loved ones, you have no loved ones. It would not be loving for you to give someone permission to treat one of your loved ones in such a terrible way. Wrath flows from love. So don't tell me I don't believe in an angry God, I believe in a loving God. Loving God equals angry God. God loves the truth, so he has wrath towards lies and deception. He loves holiness, so he has wrath towards sin. He loves faithfulness, so he has wrath towards adultery. He loves generosity, so he has wrath towards sin. He loves freedom, so he has wrath towards oppression. On the flip side of every wrathful or angry statement or expression of our God, there is always love. That's why John, writing in another place, can say emphatically, God is love. God is not wrath. Wrath does not define who God is. It's part of who he is. But it's part of who he is because God is love. Now, it would not be loving for God to look at all of us and all of our sin and all of our rebellion and all of our evil, things that we've done, things that we've said, things that we've thought. It would not be loving for God to simply say, you know what, it's okay. Let's just wipe the slate clean. It would not be loving. God would not be true to himself and to who he is. It would not be fair to the people that we harm because of our sin. It would not be just for God to behave in that way. So once we understand the concept of wrath, then we have to understand the concept of propitiation. God can't just say, you know what, forget about it. No, his wrath must be satisfied. The punishment must be paid. His anger must be pacified. That's why Jesus takes the cup. That's why him being fully human so he can bear the responsibility for all human sin, who he can stand in the place for all of us as a human, but also being fully God, therefore being infinite in his being. He, in a moment, when he says, it is finished, can in a moment satisfy the wrath of God for all of our sin. That is the cup that he came to take. To drink it down to the dregs. The cup that is meant for the wicked, for the sinful, for the evil, for the rebellious. Jesus took the cup to be a propitiation of the wrath of God. J.I. Packer sums it up in this way. He says, the driving force in Jesus' life was his resolve to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the unique dreadfulness of his death lies in the fact that he tasted on Calvary the wrath of God which is our due. 
so making propitiation for our sins. This is what Jesus came to do. He is fulfilling his purpose. Peter was ready to kill for Jesus. But Peter was not ready to accept that Jesus must be killed for him. That is Jesus' purpose. That is why he said, put away your sword. And here's the incredible thing. Go back to the garden. There's the tree of life. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve ate from, but there's also the tree of life that was guarded by swords, by angels. And Jesus one day in a new garden, in the new heavens, in the new earth, and there's a river and there's a tree and the swords have been put away. He's getting ready to tell those angels who with flaming swords are guarding the tree of life, which has branches and leaves for the healing of the nations. He's going to tell them, like, just like he told Peter, put away your sword. Because I was crucified, because I bore the wrath of God for sin that all started in the garden. I'm going to welcome people into this new garden where they can eat of the tree of life. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and majestic love for us. We thank you that you love with a pure and holy love that means that you are simultaneously a wrathful God. And Lord, I pray that this reality, the reality of your love and the reality of your righteous anger, I pray that this would cause us to hate sin and to love holiness. That as we consider the cup that Jesus took as our substitute, that he drank down to the dregs, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. That we would live lives worthy of this gospel. And that even at our darkest hour, that we would see you most clearly, Lord. And God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to humbly recognize the glorious gift that you have given us in the forgiveness of sins. That all of your wrath and all of your anger and all of your righteous hatred of sin was poured out on your son in an instant so that we could be welcomed into paradise. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.